Let's pray together, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are humbled before your holy words in Scripture. We pray that you would help us in this time to understand this great passage and how it applies to us today. May we receive its truths with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Verses 13 to 25. Luke 23, verses 13 to 25. I noticed this week, this is the 157th sermon I've preached on Luke's gospel. So my goal is to get through it before it would take someone to complete an undergraduate degree. So Luke 23, verses 13 through 25. This is God's word. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out altogether, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. May God bless the reading of his holy word. The gospel message is a beautifully simple message. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, said Paul and Silas to the Philippian jailer. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 3.28, Paul said, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The message of God, the good news, is so simple that you'd have to work very hard to make it complicated. And I was thinking this past week after going through this passage about some of the people that we had to read when I was in seminary. Some people, I would describe them as bored, smart, well-educated theologians, always trying to distinguish themselves, always trying to come up with something new and making what is, in fact, very simple, very complicated. Doing a, a lap for the Lord there, I guess. (laughs) thankful the bible is gloriously simple on the question of how can a sinner be saved and go to heaven and there are a number of clear applications that we're going to see of that here in this passage that illustrate the gospel so beautifully so simply in our passage here when god instituted the passover remember that way back in the exodus everybody understood the very simple truth if you take the blood of a blemish-free lamb and you put that blood on the doorposts of your house, 
death will not come to the firstborn of that house. And it's the very same with the gospel of God's free grace. God is holy. We are sinful. We are justly and righteously condemned before him by our sin. But God, thankfully, is also loving. And he's not willing that any of his beloved people should die in their sins and go to hell. And so he sends his son, Jesus, to die for their sins in their place. To take that punishment upon himself as their substitute. And eternal life is a free gift of God. It's a free gift of God. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved or merited by anything that we do. We rest upon the finished work of Christ in our place. And he does everything for us and in our behalf. The gospel is such a a simple, such a glorious truth. And it's only understood and embraced by those whose hearts have been changed already by the almighty power of God. And Luke is here assuming, as I've been pointing out as we've been reading through his gospel here, he's assuming you're already familiar with a lot of the details in Matthew and Mark. But as we go through the passage, I want to fill in some of those details that helps bring forward Uh, the main points of the passage a little bit more clearly. Now, I've given you an outline there in your bulletin. You can see it there under the sermon section. Number one, innocence condemned. And number two, guilty justified. And then thirdly, delivered to their will and to God's will. So let's look at that first point there. Innocence condemned, verses 13 through 17. If you look back at your Bible there, Luke 23, verses 13 to 17, it says... Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. Okay, now stop there. Look at verse 14. He says, I have examined him before you. And he also states again that Jesus is innocent of the charges that they brought against him. And he even states in verse 15 there that nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Now, the longer accounts that we have in Matthew and Mark and John, they help us see more fully exactly what just took place. Listen to the account of Matthew 27. Just listen to this, Matthew 27, 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. And we saw last week when we looked at the passage before this, when Jesus was tried before Pilate and then in front of Herod, that there was actually an interview that took place between Jesus and Pilate in Pilate's house. Pilate was so disturbed by the whole situation, he just must have said, all right, come here. We need, I want to talk to you in private. And here we get a window into that in John's gospel. Here's what happened. Jesus answered Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, you can almost hear his sarcasm, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. And before Jesus is at last crucified, he is declared publicly on at least 
five separate occasions by the man who sentences him to be crucified to be innocent. Pilate says five different times, he's done nothing wrong. I find no fault in him. He's done nothing worthy of death. In God's gracious plan to redeem his people, however, a lamb without spot who was innocent had to be provided. And isn't it amazing that the ones who crucified him, the ones who actually carried it out, the one who pronounced sentence against him, was actually the one who was the most zealous to make sure everyone knew he was innocent. He was innocent of what he'd been charged with. Indeed, he was a lamb without spot. He had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving of death. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, And without spot, hearken back to the Passover lambs that they sacrificed every year. A blemish-free lamb, without blemish, without spot. Here's Jesus, and we're told by the people that crucified him, he's innocent. He did nothing wrong, nothing deserving of death. One of the statements that Jesus made to his opponents, for which they had no answer. He asked them the direct question in John chapter 8, which of you convicts me of sin? Can any of you show that I've done anything that's actually sinful or wrong? And all they could come up with in response, remember the character of Satan's disciples? What do they do when they don't have an answer? They name call. Has anything changed? They still do that today. They accused him of being a Samaritan. They said, you have a demon. They said, you're a glutton. You're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. As we saw last week, that's what Satan's disciples are all about. They lie, they cheat, name call, steal, use any dishonest means available to try to hurt Jesus and to try to hurt Jesus' followers. And as we see in the passage here, Pilate Pilate tells the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, anyone else that was there, he gathers them all together and says, I examined him, Herod examined him, he's not guilty. He's innocent. And it was fitting in God's divine plan that the very court that had actually already convicted Jesus of the most horrific crime imaginable, blasphemy, the the Sanhedrin had convicted him of that, but the court that was actually going to carry out the sentence says that he's innocent. By their own standards, by their own Roman standards, it was a terrible miscarriage of justice. You know, the Jewish court, they lied. Remember what they said about Jesus? He told us not to pay taxes to Caesar. Did Jesus actually say that? No. And, and he claims to be a king. He claims to be the Christ, a king. And their, their insinuation was a political king who's going to compete with Caesar. Did Jesus make that claim? No. They lied. They just lied about him. Now, Pilate, he'd experienced this kind of thing before. Pilate was not, was not new to anything like this. And he knew that Jesus was innocent. In fact, Matthew and Mark's account tells us explicitly that Pilate knew that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because they were jealous of him. They were jealous of how popular he was with the crowd. Pilate knew that. It says that in Matthew 27, 18 and Mark 15, 10. They handed him over because of envy. Pilate understood there's no real guilt here in this man, Jesus. And he knew the dark character of the chief priests and the religious leaders that wanted to kill Jesus. As much as Pilate was just a rank and file pagan unbeliever, he still had a certain measure of wisdom and he could see certain things. He saw this stuff. He was not a fool. And he knew that the right thing to do was to release Jesus. He knew that he should do that. And one of his mistakes that he makes, though, however, you see it, it's kind of subtly embedded in the text here. He had a willingness to punish him. 
even though he says he's innocent. It's the strangest thing, if you notice this carefully. This may have been something less than a scourging. I, I will punish him and then release him. It may have just been a simple beating rather than a scourging, because scourgings very often killed people. And Luke's gospel doesn't actually even record Jesus' scourging, but the scourging happens chronologically after Barabbas is released. So whatever this punishment was he was going to do probably wasn't a scourging. It was something less than that. You have to think and wonder, why would Pilate be willing to punish Jesus and then release him? If the man is actually innocent of all charges, why punish him at all? Think about how odd that must have sounded to the crowd. The judge, Pilate, says to the whole crowd, he's not guilty, but I'm going to punish him. Does that make any sense? I could see a judge declaring a man not guilty and then releasing him immediately. I mean, you've all seen the videos of stuff in court. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. And everyone sighs and they stand up and high-five their lawyers and everything else. Wouldn't you think it's weird if the judge said, okay, now here's your punishment. The, the guy on trial would say, what do you mean? You said I was innocent. What is this? He's innocent, but I'm going to punish him. Innocent, but he's going to get punished. Nevertheless, a lesser form of punishment, a beating, would have still been awful, I'm sure. But Pilate was willing to do that. Why was he he willing to do that? Commentators spilled a lot of ink trying to figure out why he said that. But it seems that Jesus' enemies kind of seized on that. They noticed, wow, he's willing to punish him. We need to seize the day here, and we need to exploit this in him. He's showing us a weakness here. And Pilate looks like he's already beginning to give in a little bit to their hatred of Jesus. He's willing to punish a man that he's publicly stated five times is innocent. Before we move into the next part of the passage, we need to consider why. Why is Jesus' sinless innocence and perfection? Why is that so important? As a theological concept, as a teaching of God's word, why is it so important that he really be innocent of all sin? One of the grand truths concerning God that has been largely lost on my generation, at least, is God's holiness. The holiness of God is just not talked about anymore. And yet it's one of the most important themes of the entire Bible. You realize that the reason Jesus had to be nailed to a cross is because of God's holiness. He can't let us as sinners into his presence. That that sin's got to be dealt with to satisfy the demands of God's holiness. God is morally perfect and flawless. Holiness is an attribute of God which binds and underlies all his other attributes. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His goodness is a holy goodness. His wisdom is holy. His power is holy. God is so holy that he cannot look upon sin. His holiness is the reason that all human sin must be punished. It's the reason there is a hell. His holiness is the reason the cross was a necessity. If any of us is going to be saved. The great Dr. R.C. Sproul said this, Only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy, but that he's holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say he is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the voices of the the seraphim there in Isaiah chapter 6, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke, it says. 
A recent survey of people who used to be church members revealed that the main reason they stopped going to church was that they found it boring. It is difficult for many people to find worship a thrilling and moving experience. We note here, when God appeared in the temple in that vision in Isaiah chapter 6, the doors and the thresholds were moving. The inert matter of doorposts, the inanimate thresholds, the the wood and metal that could neither hear nor speak had the good sense to be moved in the presence of God. Isn't that a great illustration? The things that aren't even alive were shaking when God came in the room. Sproul continues, the literal meaning of the text is that they were shaking. They began to quake where they stood. Woe is me, cried Isaiah. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The doors of the temple were not the only things that were shaking. The thing that quaked the most in the building was the body of Isaiah. When he saw the living God, the reigning monarch of the universe displayed before his eyes and all of his holiness, Isaiah, the righteous prophet says, woe is me. John Calvin said this, quote, Hence that dread and amazement with which, as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. When Moses was on Mount Sinai to get the second pair of commandments after he broke the first ones, he asked to see the glory of God. Show me your glory. Remember the divine response? You cannot look at me and live. When Peter drew those nets out of the water, one last time because Jesus told him to, and there's so many fish that it's starting to sink two boats. Remember Peter's response to Jesus? He says, go away from me for I am a sinful man. It's an amazing thing. God, the holy God, before whom all sinners tremble, he loves those sinners. He loves them. This holy God loves sinners. In the book of Romans, in that first chapter, we get some of the darkest indictments against the whole human race that we have in the whole Bible. Starting in Romans 1, 26, God lists 26 distinct forms of wickedness against which his wrath is revealed from heaven. Everything from pride and murder and rage and being untrustworthy, sexual immorality, disobedience to parents, homosexuality, on and on and on it goes. And it ends with this incredible verse, Romans 1.32, about these people who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. They, they cheer each other on. And the good news is that Jesus is about to willingly lay down his innocent body and his soul to save the people that do all that stuff. To save people that cheer each other on in their wickedness. Beginning in Romans 3.21, God declares that Jesus loves and dies for, saves, liberates, sanctifies and preserves and bears fruit in the lives of the people that do all the stuff mentioned there. People who used to be hypocrites and homosexual perverts and who were liars, thieves, extortioners, drunkards, drug addicts. Jesus loves them, dies for them, liberates them from that sin. The word of God emphasizes this point because it's crucial to our salvation and to our being able to be loved by God and adopted into his family. We've got to see our sin against the holiness of God. We've got to see God for who he really is. 
He's not to be trifled with. You know, the scripture presents us with an essential doctrine. It's another doctrine that's being confused, it's being corrupted, ignored, and it's that there are two covenants in scripture. There's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. There's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And I don't mean by that covenant of works, Old Testament, covenant of grace, New Testament. Covenant of works, covenant of grace run side by side parallel through both testaments from beginning to end. Now, what is that? What is the covenant of works? It's what God made with Adam and all of his posterity there in the Garden of Eden. It's such a simple command he gives him in Genesis 2, 16. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And that's the covenant of works, which required perfect obedience. It was made between God and Adam and all of Adam's descendants. And the first Adam, as all of us know, failed. He failed. He rebelled. He didn't obey God. And he plunged the whole human race into ruin and sin. And that's why all of us die. That's why all of us struggle. That's why we sin. That's why we hurt each other. That's why people hurt us. That's why we have all the heartache and all the struggles and all the pain and suffering that we go through. But blessed be the Lord God that what scripture calls the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was sent to succeed where the first Adam failed. And that's the covenant of grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That covenant of grace, that second covenant. That covenant is made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all of his elect as his seed. We can't be right with God by the first covenant anymore. As soon as Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we can't be right with God by our works. Our works cannot get us into heaven. Our works can't even play a partial role of getting us into heaven. So God makes a second covenant with Jesus Christ, the legal representative of the whole Christian church, and he fulfills what the first Adam failed to fulfill. And this is why it's so important that we see he's innocent of the charges brought against him. The court that has him crucified says it five times. He's not done anything deserving of death. He's done nothing wrong. Not only has he done nothing deserving of death, I find no fault with him whatsoever. Jesus enters into the first covenant. He enters into the broken covenant, the covenant of works that all of us fail to fulfill, and he fulfills it vicariously in our place. In order to save us from getting what the first Adam got us, Jesus must be sinlessly perfect. And that's why the scriptures emphasize that. No deceit was found in his mouth. The judges that sentenced him to be, to be crucified said he was innocent. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it foreshadows his sinless perfection. He is the true spotless lamb of God who was slain to pay for our sins. What wondrous love is this indeed that God has for his people as we just sang in our opening hymn. How deep the father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Jesus endures all of the shame, all of the wrath, all the punishment as a sinless sacrificial substitute for his people because he loves them and he loves them to the end. And he achieves by his own obedience what the prophet Isaiah calls a robe of righteousness and a garment of salvation. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Because the covenant of works requires perfect, personal, 
perpetual obedience from us. And this is something entirely out of our reach. Ever since Adam fell, we all come into the world already sinful, already have a bent towards rebellion. And all of our kids, all of our little children that we've had in this church, none of us have had to ever teach them how to lie, cheat, steal, or disobey us, or be disrespectful. We all inherit that corrupted nature. We can't do it. And so God has to do it for us in our behalf, in our place. And that's what Jesus is accomplishing right before us here in the passage. He's weaving together the glorious, perfect, shining white, pristine garment of holiness that we are then wrapped up in by divine love and hidden in before the judgment of God. When we die with our faith in Jesus alone for our salvation, God clothes us in that glorious garment. When we appear before God on the day of judgment, he sees only the perfection of Jesus, which we are hidden in and clothed in. This is illustrated beautifully. One of the most memorable parables that Jesus told. Now stay stay there in Luke 23. I'm just going to read this to you from Matthew 22. But this illustrates perfectly. Listen. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and they went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here? without a wedding garment. And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And in this parable, the guests to the wedding banquet for the king's son are taken from the highways, taken from the lower levels of society. And none of those folks would have had an adequate or sufficiently clean garment to wear. And the implication is that the king himself would have to provide that garment to each one of those guests, except apparently for the one who thought the one he was wearing was good enough. And that's why he's cast out. We can only enter the banquet hall clothed in the garment provided by the king. We can't come in our own pretended righteousness, our own obedience. Everyone in the world, everyone in this room is clothed with something. Everyone here is clothed with something that you're going to wear to that Wedding feast. What are you going to wear to it? What are you going to wear to it? We're either clothed in a garment stained with sin, or we throw that garment aside and we put on Christ's righteousness. That garment, that robe. All of us, since our first representative, Adam, since he failed, we begin our lives with a garment that's already dirty. And no amount of laundry detergent can get that stain out. No amount of good intentions can get that stain out. That's why Jesus is enduring what he is in this passage. That's why next week we're going to see him crucified, nailed to a cross. We're all clothed with something. We're all headed down this great path to the wedding feast of God. 
And how will we get in? How will we get in? Well, someone else is going to have to give us a clean robe. Someone else has to give us a clean garment. What's going on here with Jesus at his trials and then his death by crucifixion and his resurrection? Here's what's happening. Jesus in these moments is in the sight of God the Father taking off his garment of perfect righteousness and is beginning to wear our garment. He's putting on our stained garment, our filthy sinful garment, our robe of sin. And the whole time he does that, inherently, morally, he's still sinlessly perfect. But legally, before God the Father in these moments, he's held responsible for all the sins of his beloved people. He's held accountable to God for what we have done. And he's crushed, as the scripture says in Isaiah 53, crushed for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions, beaten for our sins, killed for our wickedness. And before we came to know Jesus, the scripture says that all of us, every one of us, before we came to Christ, if we do know Christ, we were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3 says, just like everyone else, but God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace who have been saved. We were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else before God saved us. And Jesus at the cross takes that wrath, that righteous punishment of God upon himself. And he saves us from it by bearing it all himself. The innocent the just for the guilty and the unjust. This is the cup. He's just about to start drinking it there at the cross. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying, he's sweating drops of blood. Abba, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. He prayed so earnestly for that, but he drank it. He drank every last drop of it. And while all this happened, he's still inwardly, morally pure and perfect. Our Lord never committed a single sin, not once, not ever. I want you to just think about the holiness of Jesus for a moment. Because when you look at his life and you look at his birth, he has no human father. He doesn't contract original sin. And he maintains this perfection throughout his entire life. Jesus never complained. Jesus never complained about what was for dinner, ever. He never lusted. Made it through all of his teenage years, never had a lustful thought, ever. Never coveted. Never broke the Sabbath day. He never had anything in his heart or his life that competed with God for all of his love and affection. Even when he was betrayed by his closest friends and abandoned, he's still not complaining. He still has nothing but love for his father. He doesn't question his providence. He honored his father and his mother. Indeed, he made sure that Mary was provided for while he's dying on the cross. He entrusts her care to John, honoring that commandment, honor your father and mother. Jesus never stole. He never lied. He never murdered. That garment of salvation that he produced is glorious. It's beautiful. It's perfect. And I say to you, if you're not wearing it, you will be cast out of the wedding feast into outer darkness, just like the parable. Jesus' perfect sinlessness is what is in view in this passage here in Luke. He's innocent, says Pilate. Five different times. What an incredible crime against earthly justice it was. A man declared to be innocent by the very man that would eventually order his crucifixion. So there you have point number one, innocence condemned. Now look at the next section, the guilty justified, verses 18 through 23. Verse 18, but they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. 
And he was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Now, there is incredible irony in this passage before us for a whole host of reasons. Barabbas, you know what his name means in Aramaic? It means son of the father. Bar Abba, son of the father. Here we have a murderer, Barabbas, justly condemned to public execution for his crimes. And his name means son of the father. While the perfectly innocent, true son of God, the father, is standing right next to him. And who do the people want? Do they want the son of God, the innocent one? No, they want the murderer. Remember, Pilate, Pilate thought for sure the, the crowd would ask for Jesus. Surely they're going to ask for Jesus. The fact was well known to Pilate. One week before this, what happened when Jesus came into the city? The whole crowd's going crazy. There's what, two million people there for Passover? And they're laying down palm branches and Hosanna. Here he comes, the Messiah riding on a donkey. Pilate was well, well aware of all of this. He's the popular one. He's the one that people are going to ask for. He comes into the city amid shouts and singing and palm leaves and, and riding on a donkey. This crowd would never ask for a murderer. They had to ask for Jesus, Pilate's thinking. And the chief priests, the religious leaders who brought Jesus to Pilate, remember one of their accusations? He claims to be Christ, a king. He's going to lead an insurrection against you, Pilate. They accuse him of being a political king who would lead an insurrection. And there's no way that these men who had just been expressing their concern to Pilate that Jesus is guilty of insurrection, they're not going to actually ask for a real insurrectionist, right? They're not going to ask for him to be released to them, are they? Everything Pilate thinks he knows here is wrong. We know from the other gospel accounts that that's exactly what the chief priests and the religious leaders of Israel did. They went around in the crowd and they stirred them up. You better ask for Barabbas. You ask for Barabbas and you demand that Jesus be crucified. This tradition of releasing a prisoner during a feast that had to be Pilate's ticket out. I mean, he was really hoping it would be. <clears throat> he and Herod, they found no guilt in this man, Jesus. We know from Matthew that Pilate's wife, remember this part? Pilate's wife has some kind of a horrible dream about Jesus. And even sends word to Pilate in the midst of the trial. Remember what she tells him? Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things in a dream because of him. I wonder what her dream was about. Surely the crowd's going to ask for Jesus though, right? But it wasn't meant to be in the divine plan. The same crowd that shouted praise to Jesus just a week earlier. They quickly turn on him and they scream crucify him. Together, they scream that over and over again. You know, people are like that. We can be very fickle. We are like that. We can be very easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by every new fad of false teaching. But God's true people are not like this. They are steadfast and immovable in the truth. The word of God commands us to be over and over again. We know the gospel. We love the gospel. We will defend it. We will stand for it. We know what scripture says about creation, about how many biological sexes there are. We know what it says about things like this. We're not going to move from it because we love the Lord and we're going to be loyal to him. Christian character is defined by that. Steadfast loyalty to Christ. Steadfast loyalty to the truth and to righteousness, regardless of where the winds of culture change are blowing in this decade or in the next decade. And this crowd represents the very opposite goal of ministry. 
The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders had failed these people so badly. And their fickleness is a reflection of their leaders' ungodliness and their leaders' false teachings. They were not well-taught people. The work of all elders, all pastors and teachers is spelled out so very clearly in God's word. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of Israel, the ones that were supposed to guide them into the truth and to help them understand grace and what it is to believe in the expectation of Messiah, they had failed them. They didn't teach them the truth. And because of that, they were easily swayed one way or the other. We're told in the word of God, Ephesians 4, here's what ministers and elders are supposed to do. We're supposed to do what we do for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You know, it is a sin against God not to have discernment. It's a sin against God to be deceived, and led astray from his word. This crowd was a group of spiritual children, tossed to and fro by their wicked leaders. Cheer for that guy, they do it. Cheer for that guy, they do it. Believe this, they believe it. Look at verse 20 to 23. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has this man done? I have found no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. You see, he's saying that to kind of placate. I'll I'll, I'll beat him up a little bit. Isn't that enough to satisfy you guys? Verse 23. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And the voices began to prevail. And we know from the other gospel accounts, Pilate could see that a tumult was starting. A riot was about to start. And he says, forget it. They can crucify him. I don't care. He tried to do what was just, but in the end, pragmatism won the day. He didn't want a riot under his watch to have to tell his superiors about in Rome. What Pilate did here, however, in condemning the just was an abomination to God. He justified the wicked, Barabbas, a man guilty of murder. And he condemned the innocent Jesus to a cursed, horrifying death by crucifixion. And he ordered the crucifixion of a perfectly innocent man that he himself not only knew was innocent, but had announced to the entire crowd five times was innocent. Look at point three, last thing. Verse 24 and 25. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. At no point, as we know, at no point is Jesus out of control here. At no point is he out of control. And while the actions of the crowd, the religious leaders of Israel and Pilate, they were pure evil, evil in every way. They are doing exactly what God had predestined to occur. Peter would eventually preach at Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection there in Jerusalem. Peter would preach to this crowd. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So their lawless hands that they used to crucify him, that was predestined by God. That was the determined purpose of God. Jesus' being delivered to their will to be crucified was also God's will. That was God's will. The wicked schemes of this world, the people that lay their plans and plot, They always lose in the end in the divine outworking. 
By his work, Jesus would produce, by his obedience, by his death, his burial, his resurrection, his sinlessly perfect life, he would produce a perfect wedding garment for his people. And when a sinner repents and they believe on Jesus alone for their salvation, God clothes them in that garment and they put on Jesus Christ. The word of God says this again and again and again. Job 29, 14, Job, poor Job, in the throes of his trials and his agony, he says in Job 29, 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. He understood it. He understood the gospel. A passage in Isaiah 61, we rejoice greatly in the Lord. He has clothed us in garments of salvation. He has covered us with a robe of righteousness. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Remember the great man that was converted by reading that long ago, Augustine, when he was about 32 years old, still wanting to sin, still wanting to live a debauched life. He picks up a book, the book of Romans in a park and his eyes fall down on that passage, not in revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Augustine's converted. I'm done with sin now. I'm turning away from it. I'm putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's what baptism is, a sign of that being clothed with Christ. Jesus was perfectly innocent of all the charges his enemies brought against him. And yet he ends up on a cross just a few hours after this. This was the will of his enemies, but it was also God's will. God intended good where they intended evil. In the very same act, just like Joseph's brothers, what were Joseph's brothers trying to do when they threw Joseph, their brother, down into the pit and they're arguing about what should we do? Some of them just want to kill him outright. Others, now let's sell him off into slavery. Are they thinking, are they thinking in doing that, yeah, we're going to save the lives of our family by this sin. And yet that's exactly what they did. Can God even do that with us? Horrible things that we've done actually turn them for good? You bet he can. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go try that out. But can he do that? Of course. Of course. Joseph, in his seasoned older years, when his family is reunited and he's reconciled to his brothers, his brothers are still scared. His bro- brothers are still scared. This guy's the second most powerful man in Egypt. He could have our, our heads on a platter like that if he wanted to. And Joseph, being the mature man of God that he was, he didn't hold that grudge against his brothers. He tells them in Genesis fifty twenty, As for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Do you think there were people who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus who actually repented and were forgiven of that and came to know him? Absolutely. One of the Roman soldiers that was standing by confessed he was the son of God. He can forgive people even of that? Absolutely. Even when the rage of God's enemies seem to be at a fever pitch, God is still sovereign and he's still on his throne. So to summarize, in this passage, we've seen Jesus is innocent, totally innocent of all charges, and yet he's condemned. He's condemned. And that sinlessness is the key to our salvation. He succeeds where the first Adam fails. Adam sinned, Jesus is sinless in behalf of all those that are in him, all those that believe in him. And we saw the, the guilty Barabbas is justified and set free. What an act of hypocrisy that was for the chief priest to do. They brought 
Jesus to Pilate under the pretension, we're concerned about this man being a political insurrectionist, as if any of them cared about anything like that anyway. But then they stirred up the crowd to release a real insurrectionist. Did they really care about insurrectionists? Of course not. Pure evil. Pure evil on their part. Yet, praise God that Jesus was delivered to their will. Because in delivering him to their will, he was also delivered to God's will. And what was that will? What was the will of God the Father for Jesus? You know, he tells us directly what it is. In John 6, 38, he told his hearers, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. And people have asked me as a pastor hundreds of times, is it, can, can a true Christian lose their salvation? And my response is, only if it's possible for Jesus to fail to do the will of his Father. And I assure you, he will not fail. Jesus is accountable to his father to save everyone that was given to him. And I assure you, he will save them all. God the Father's will for Jesus is that he would redeem his people from their sins by becoming a curse on their behalf. In Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The people's will was to kill Jesus because he was not what they wanted in a savior. They wanted a political deliverer. God's will is that Jesus would save his people from their sins by his own death, by his own burial, his own resurrection, and his own perfect, complete, seamless robe of righteousness that he gives to us. And praise God that God's will always triumphs. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the perfection of the work of Jesus we bless your name. You've rescued us from your holiness, that Christ took that wrath away so that we can have the blessed joy of fellowship with you, not as a wrathful judge, but as a loving father who is always there for us, who never leaves or forsakes us. May our hearts rejoice in you on this Lord's Day Sabbath and bring us back together this evening to worship you more. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.